Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your love and your grace and your kindness. We ask you to bless this time as we open the word and ask you to show us what you would want us to see in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 21. <clears throat> uh, we've been covering the David and Jonathan meeting together and, and uh, David telling Jonathan that Saul was trying to kill him and Jonathan saying, no, my dad's not trying to kill you. And then... Uh, his dad gets angry with him, throws a spear at Jonathan. Jonathan gets angry with his dad, comes back, tells David, yeah, go, go away, dad's trying to kill you. Uh, and if you remember, he renews his, uh, their agreement to, for David to protect his children and do good to his children for Jonathan's sake. And we'll find later on when David is established in the kingdom, he takes care of Jonathan's child, the only one that's left, and, and invites him into the, into the palace to, to live and be fed. Does anybody know Jonathan's son's name that ends up in the palace? <laughs> Meshibotheth. Right on the tip of everybody's tongue. Uh, you know, you're, you're ready? Meshibotheth. Everybody's ready to name their child Meshibotheth, I know. <laughs> so, all right. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then, David, then came David to Nob, to Abim, Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting. Okay. And, and was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why are you alone and no man with you? And David said unto Ahimelech, the priest, The king hath commanded me a business and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send you. And what I have commanded you, and I have appointed my servant to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what is under your hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified in the way of a vessel. So the priest gave him the hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the, in, in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under your hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my spear weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you slew in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephah. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other that, like, that here. And David said unto them, There is none like that. Give it to me. <clears throat> All right. Let's look at this, and we're going to see over the next couple of chapters, we're going to see a lot of David's faults. All right. We've been kind of talking about some of David's faults as we got in here, and, and we're going to continue looking at a couple of his faults here. Uh, it says that David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid of the meeting with David and said to him, Why are you alone and no man with you? 
Okay, so David leaves Jonathan. All right, remember they had that little thing where Jonathan was to shoot the arrows, and if they were, he says, go beyond, you're, they're too this, this side of you, to tell David what his dad had, had decided. And Jonathan, David's running from that, and the first place he goes to Nob, and he greets the priest. And the priest's name is Ahimelech. And Ahimelech sees David by himself and is a little afraid. Now, I don't know how much of the problems between Saul and David are known around the country. It indicates here that this priest knows something's up. Right? Remember, David's the general. He, he is the king's um, son-in-law. David is not going to go anywhere by himself. That would be almost like the president of the United States showing up someplace without the Secret Service. Okay, or a general showing up without his aides. You know, and all of a sudden, you've got David here with nobody with him. You know something is strange. And the very first question is, why are you alone and no one's with you? Okay, uh, and it's almost like, you know, do I want to be talking to you? And if, you, and if the knowledge of the, the problems with Saul and and David are pretty well known, and I have a feeling they were, especially up amongst the, the elite, the priests, the, the, the nobles. It's almost like, are you running from Saul type question. Uh, but if nothing else, it's the very least he's, this is not the way it's supposed to be. David is by himself. He doesn't have his adjunct with him. He doesn't have his, his uh, secretary, you know, the people to run errands for him. He doesn't have the, the guard with him. And this is really looking to Ahimelech that's something that is interesting. And David says to Ahimelech, the king hath commanded me a business and has said to me, let no man know of the business where I, whereabout I send you. And I have commanded you and appointed my servants to such and such a place. And we've been talking a few times about how easily David lies. Okay, and here's another example of David lying. He has not been sent by Saul to go anywhere. And yet he tells the priest, uh, I've been sent by Saul out on a special errand. This is a problem that we see in David, and it's going to be part of David's penchant from this point forward. We're going to see him very likely, very quick to not tell the truth. And yet at the times he's very righteous. You know, but we see David having problems. Now, I really, though, appreciate the fact that God shows us that David isn't a perfect man in any way, form, shape, or form, because that tells us that God called David a man after his own heart. How does he look at us when we fail? No different. If we fail, we repent, we're in Christ, he looks at us and says, these are my children, I love them, I'm going to use them. David was used. He's going to be used. He killed Saul, but he's going to be uh, killed Goliath, not Saul. Uh, but he's going to be used to do great things all through his lifetime. And yet we see he was a very frail and weak individual. We'll later on see in his life that he did, wasn't a very good father. <laughs> you know, most of his children did not turn out very well. You had uh, Absalom rebel against him and try to take the throne. You had uh, the other child rape his rape his sister. Um, you know, so we have all kinds of problems, that, and David never dealt with any of these problems. So David, David has some real serious 
flaws. But by the, like I say, that's great for us because it shows us God's grace. It shows us how gracious God was to David. If he was gracious to David, he'll be gracious to us. He'll be gracious to us, exactly. And that's why I like that when God shows us the problems that different people had. Uh, and it's really wonderful to see that God uses the weak all through the scriptures because that just means he'll use us. And we see David just saying to him, you know, hey, I've been commanded by Saul to go do something. And I can't, tell you, can't really tell you what it was because I've been told, what, told to do something. Um, and then he goes, now therefore, what is under your hand? Give me five loaves of bread or what there is. So he says, you know, hey, I'm on urgent business. The king sent me. Give me, give me some food. Five loaves of bread. Um, and the answer to the other priest is, and the priest answered David, there is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. Now, this is something that is very interesting. Who remembers what the showbread is? Anybody remember the showbread when we were talking about it way back in Leviticus? Every week, they had a bread that they would make, and they made 12 loaves of bread in, in the priest, and they took it into the holy place, and they presented it before God, and they would sprinkle frankincense and oil on it, and they would take the old bread out, and the priests were able to eat those 12 loaves of bread, and it was, it was for the priest to eat. This is the bread he's talking about, the show bread. It's set before God for a week. So this, the bread that he's talking about is at least a week old. So they can eat the bread after the week old. After the, after it's, after, when they put the new bread in its place. There was leaven in this bread, yes. Just the priest, you said, yeah, just the Only the priests are supposed to eat this bread. Now, in Hebrews, they talk about the fact that they, David ate this bread, okay, that wasn't meant for him, for him. and uh, God gave him a blessing and all that stuff on it, but I just want to make sure we understand which bread this is. The, the hallowed bread that he's talking about is the show bread, and the show bread was baked, it was 12 loaves that were put into the holy place to sit before God, representing, bread, you know, the food, the spiritual food, and it was sprinkled with frankincense and oil. And he says, that's all I have. Okay, David, it's for the priest, but, you know, because you're on the king's business and, you're, and it's urgent, I'll let you have it if these guys have been, kept themselves at least from women, all right? Uh, in other words, are they holy? Are they pure? And uh, because this was a big deal to him. The priest has given him food that does not belong to anybody but the, pre but the, the other priests. So this is a really big deal that's going on. And, uh, and David says, you know, yeah, it's, you know, uh, of the truth, no, one, no one's been with, these women, been with these guys. You know, uh, this is another lie because he's by himself. Okay, so he's now told the lie that he's on business for the king and he's leading the priest. He didn't actually, yeah, he did. He says the, 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 other, the other men have not, have not been with any women. <laughs> All right, so we have two direct lies already. Yeah, I, I kind of feel sorry for David, at least in his earlier years. He had a lot of problems with the truth, obviously. And God shows it to us. And the next chapter, we're going to see his pride coming out and his anger coming out. Um, but, you know, he goes, we've been kept away for these three days and everybody is pure. And so the priest goes ahead and gives him the bread. And, you know, 
is really, again, we're seeing God's grace in all of this. God provides through the priest something he's not supposed to have. So we see the grace of God being offered to him. And uh, he takes this bread, and, and in, the, in the verse 6, it says, The priest gave him the hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. So again, that's, he's referring to this hallowed bread being the show bread, the bread that goes into the holy place to be, be presented before God. And remember, we talked about way back when there's 12 loaves. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel that were put before God. And that was also in the place where the uh, altar of incense was burning all the time, which represents prayers. So it was that Israel was put before God and prayers were offered and it was just symbolic. But it was a special bread that, that wasn't common. It wasn't to be given to anybody but the priest. It wasn't even to go to the priest's family. It was literally to go just to the priest on this bread. So they take this bread, he gives it to him, and then we have this little vignette in there in verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chiefest of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul. We want to remember this guy because he is going to play a part in a couple of chapters to get all the priests killed because he's going to report to Saul that David was there. Uh, and so this is just one little verse where pre gives us this foreshadowing of what is coming. And this is a man who's fairly important. He's the chief herdsman. He's an Edomite. Remember, Edomites are not the most friendly with the Israelites in the first place. And he sees David. All right? And this is going to cause a problem in the future. And, but it just gives us a little foreshadowing here. And it says he was of the house of Saul. He took care of everything that was Saul's. He's a, he's a servant of Saul. And again, if he knows what's been going on between Saul and David, he's, he's probably seeing dollar signs and rewards in his eyes. And he definitely sees them later on, if, even if he didn't know about it at this point in time. But he also is probably wondering, why is David here all by himself with nobody, you know, nobody there? Or he knows what's been going on either way it's going to be something strange. And again, I bring this point to us. David is alone. And David is a chief person. And even back then, chief people did not go about without a bodyguard. Kings always had a bodyguard. You know, in our day, we call them the secret service or the special services you know, out there. Uh, but even in that day, they had a bodyguard. The king never went anywhere without his bodyguard nearby. Uh, the prince would have a bodyguard. Uh, you know, this is not a new phenomenon in our day and age, which takes us to our, our statement from Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. There's always, what has always been there is, is still around, this whole political intrigue, uh, this, this lying and the, and the backstabbing of each other that goes on in our day is <laughs> going on in that day. Uh, and it's an amazing thing. When, when you read the Bible, you know, I've, I've listened to so many people going, well, how can you read that book? It's so old and out of date. And I look at it, I'm going, you know, change some of the names, change the place, and we'd be reading today's newspaper in many of the, you know, in many of the uh, especially historical accounts. You look at it and say, 
this is exactly what's going on. It is exactly what happens. But it is, but it is really an amazing thing when we go through the scriptures and we see all these things that are on there and how God uses them and realize that there's nothing, nothing new. Nothing new that goes on, nothing brand new. And people have just got to realize you know, because in our day we think we're so smart, we've got we got problems that have never existed before. Uh, you know, we have different forms of eavesdropping than they did, but uh, believe me, you said anything in the palace, it got reported very quickly to whoever needed to not hear it. <laughs> it's been said from way back that nothing travels faster than news, and even in the past, by the time you could ride to the next city, they already had the news of what was going what was being that you were coming to tell them about and that's what i'm saying everything is still the same yeah we do things a little different we do it in different ways but everything is always existed you know the intrigue the political intrigue the battles the 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 uh sales that give you a loadable to sell something you know we just have different ways to deliver it now so it's it's all the same and it's an amazing thing and we see Doeg is here, and he's going to be a problem later on. Then verse 9, And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under your hand spear or sword? That I, For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because of the king's business required haste. All right, so now we have the third lie. You know, he may be without arms, but it wasn't because he's on the king's business. He was definitely in a hurry. There, there is a edge of truth in there, as most good lies have truth in them. He goes, you know, is there, there any weapons? Basically, any weapons in here? Because I, had, I was in such a hurry, I didn't grab my weapons. Right. Go back to David is the is uh, a son-in-law of the king and a and basically a general in the military, or at least a very high-ranking officer. He's not going to go anywhere without his weapons. At least a sword will be on him at all times. Uh, so here we have this whole thing. This has got to be making Ahimelech kind of nervous. David's by himself. He has no food and he has no weapons. Now he doesn't show any of this because he's being respectful to the position that David holds. But, you know, he's got to be questioning in his mind uh, what is going on here, as any of us would have been doing. You know, and most of us probably might have been a little more blunt. Uh, David, you're by yourself and you have no weapons. Uh, your story's not adding up. At least in your mind, you're very quickly going to go, your story's just not adding up. There's too many holes in this story for it to seem to be true. And, you know, the priest answers, you know, the, the sword of Goliath is here. And he goes, it's wrapped up and it's uh, over behind the ephod. There's none, there's none other. And David said, there is that there is no none like it, give it to me. Now this tells us that David has grown a little bit because he's going to take Goliath's sword. And remember, Goliath's sword is made for a nine foot six inch person, which means it's no small uh, tool. And David has already used it, of course. He cut David uh, Goliath's head off after, after he threw the stone at him and killed him, or at least knocked him out. And he's... So David says, hey, that's a really good sword. I, I, I'll take that one. And, you know, so we see this, this going on before him, David lying to the priest. And this is a pretty big deal because, you know, usually people will be honest to priests and pastors. <laughs> 
David's not doing this with the person, and he's telling a long-winded lie. lie. You know, a multifaceted lie and adding lie upon lie on this thing. And, you know, again, we don't know when we remember when Michael lied to Saul that, you know, David threatened her. And I said, I don't know if it was her that originated that lie or if David said, hey, if your father challenged you, just tell him, just tell him I was going to kill you. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But, you know, his whole family's having some problems with this. We're going to see uh, Absalom has no problem lying later on. We see uh, uh, the sister and brother that end up in an incestuous activity, not having any problem lying and telling what, what happened. We see lies prevalent in David's family. And really sad place to see. But again, I'm not trying to belittle David as we do this, but I'm just saying God used him anyway. So he'll use us. All right, verse 10. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said, un, said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another in dances, saying, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scratched on the door of the gate and, his spittle fall down, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, you see that the man is mad. Wherefore have you brought me to him? I, have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play mad in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? <laughs> All right. <coughs> David leaves for fear of Saul, and he runs straight to the enemy. All right, Gath is one of the head cities of the Philistines. Remember, Goliath was from Gath, the Philistine. David has beat the Philistines on several battles. He's, and where does he run? To the enemy, to hide from Saul. And the strange thing for us as Christians is how often do we run to an enemy when we're running away from God? You know, some sin, some sin in our life that's our enemy that we, God delivered us from, we had victory over it, and we fall away from God, and the very first thing we do many times is run back to what God has delivered us from. Whether it's... Uh, alcohol or drugs or workaholism or you know pornography whatever it might be we run away from the uh, run back to whatever it is that God delivered us from and that we had victory over and this is an interesting thing David is running to the enemy and we think about where does he go he goes to Gath now is there any place that would be that Goliath's sword is probably going to be recognized quicker than than going to Gath, which where he is from, all right, probably made there, and Gath, you know, you could picture Goliath, you know, he was always, you know, bouncing around in ceremony, and his sword would have been very distinctive. Whatever made it would have made it distinctive. David said it was special. So what's he do? He takes the enemy's sword back to his hometown to try to hide. Because it doesn't say, seem to say that he told him that he was David. All right? 
So he runs back to the enemy with a telltale sign that he is, that he has Goliath's sword. All right? And they know who killed Goliath. And they know that any normal soldier would have taken the spoil and kept it. All right? Remember, we've talked about this. Back in that day, when you fought a battle, part of your pay was to take the spoils. You would take their weapons, their clothes, their their gold. I don't know why people wore their gold and silver, but they took their gold and silver into battle, probably to show how important they were. But when you would kill people, they would spend the next day after the battle just taking everything from the bodies. And that was part of their pay. They weren't professional soldiers. They were taken from their farms and their business and set, set out to battle, and, and their pay included getting as much as you could from the dead. And unfortunately, sometimes from the cities that you conquered over, you took everything out of the cities. Back then, they did too, Yeah, they, they looted very, very efficiently. <laughs> they, they called it spoils, but it, yeah. was, it was looting the looting. Uh, and when he gets to, and when David gets to it in verse, in verse 11, the servants of Achish said unto him, is not this David the king of the land? Okay, now they didn't quite have that right. David's not the king of the land, but he has led the army so successfully and has these songs being sung about him. And they even quote the song, you know, that did they not sing and dance, Saul is saying his thousands and David is tens of thousands. In their mind, they've jumped to the same conclusion Saul did. And remember, Saul, when he heard this, got irritated and said, what more can he have but the throne? And this is, that led to his hatred for, for David. And the Philistines already believe that he is king because they've heard the song. The people obviously love him enough to make him their king. He's killed Goliath. He's gone out into battle several times. He's being... A, being attributed with 10 times the, the kill ratio of the king. So in their minds, he's got to be king. They haven't heard about an overthrow of the kingdom, but all the rumors they're having is, you know, this David is really special. He's got to be king. You know, if he's not the king, why would the king put up with him getting this kind of reputation? And you've got a picture, and this is why Saul hates David, because he does understand the world's way of looking at it. If somebody is getting that much glory, the next thing has got to be your, your position. And that's how Saul looks at it. And this is what the Philistines say. If he's getting that much glory, he's got to be king. You know, you know, only a king, and, and, and only a king, you know, and if he's not king, then the, king's, then the king that he has is actually a fool for letting him get this kind of glory. And we saw, if you go through history, over and over again, kings would kill their sons if the king if their sons got too popular with the people. If they got too or they they thought they had gotten too popular with the people. If they were too victorious in battle, they would kill their sons. You know, it was kind of a strange thing, but they were worried about being overthrown. You, know, you would think oh, oh my son's doing really good. He's gonna make a great military leader. He's doing really good. I'll let him let him have fun. But they were always worried about them getting too popular with the people. And we've got to keep this in mind. It's still true in our day. People in power want to keep their power. And they will do whatever it takes to stay in power, even if it doesn't make any sense. You know, kill their strong leader, the kid, put him into power in the first place, uh, you know, destroy, destroy things that make, you know, that 
that are being more popular than them. Uh, in recent days, we had Hitler start a second uh, two-front war when, when he knew it was a really bad thing to do, but he needed some victories. You know, we see all kinds of very bad decisions made in history by people wanting to stay in authority. Even in the business world, you see some businessmen make some very bad decisions because they need something. They need a little extra sale. They need, you know, they need whatever. So they'll make a bad decision so that they look good, at least temporarily, because somebody's angling to take their business over or, or take their position. And here the people understood, if David's that popular and the king hasn't taken him out, he must be king. And they jumped to a bad conclusion. And, uh, and David hears these, and he gets a little bit of afraid. Uh, he starts thinking, what have I <laughs> done? Okay. At least in Israel, I just had King Saul trying to kill me. Here, these guys have a real reason to kill me. You know, Saul, didn't, Saul, he at least had a chance to be able to convince to, you know, I haven't done anything. In Philistia, he didn't have that. He's killed Goliath. He's, he's won victories. He's killed thousands of their people. They have real reasons. If, if, they, had, if they had did, and I'm sure they did, he might have been uh, person of interest number one. You know, uh, you know, have you seen this fellow? You know, 10,000 gold pieces for, for, for arrest information relating to his arrest and capture. You know, David would have been that number one criminal as far as the Philistines were concerned. So where did he run? Philistia. Yeah. This is the problem when people do not obey God. They do some really insane things sometimes. And we've all been there where we find ourselves doing, how did I end up here? What, you know, what brought me here? You know, must have lost my mind temporarily. And we did lose our mind. David's lost his mind. He runs to Philistine, the Philistines for protection. And uh, all of a sudden he gets there and he realizes this is not good. I am not at a good place at the moment. Now we kind of all laugh because you know we see we see through it, but you know, how many times have we done just that in our life? We have run someplace and then we open up our eyes and come to our sense and go, What am I doing here? How in the world did I get myself into this mess? And that's where David's at. <laughs> You know, running to the enemy to be protected from the person who is considering David his enemy. Uh, David would have been much better running to Egypt because they're not a direct conflict with him, or maybe even going north to a, you know, but he ends up going to probably the worst possible enemy he could go to. He's defeated them several times in battle. He's killed their champion, and he's wearing Goliath's sword. Uh, not really smart moves on any part of this direction. And verse 13, then he changed his behavior before them. All right, so we want to see another lie. Yeah, this one is a self-preservation lie. Probably, you know, uh, he's in a bad place. So instead of trusting God, he decides, I'm just going to tell another lie. Uh, and he says he changed his behavior, and he feigned himself mad in their hands, he scratched at the doorpost and he let his spit dribble down his beard. And you, know, you got to pick you know, David. You know, he's a good actor. <laughs> he's going to convince him that he's uh, 
going to convince him that he's insane. Uh, and he's scratching, scratching at the gates and, you know, like, let me out type thing, you know, he's scratching at them, he's, you know, dribbling the spit down, you know, he's, he's acting like a madman. And Achish, the king, is kind of interesting. He looks at him and said, uh, Lo, you see that the man is mad. Wherefore have you brought him to me? You know, you know before, before David was acting like this, they thought they'd, they thought they'd had the great catch. We got David. And we've caught David. We're going to bring him to the king. And, and like I said, there was probably, you know, I can imagine there was a reward for David. He's, he's been victorious. And people are going, hey, if we can get David, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure. And all of a sudden, so King Achish is coming up to take, you know, claim this prize. And all he sees is a crazy man. Climbing the walls, scratching at the doors, uh, drooling, uh, and as you said, pretty good actor, obviously, because he's going to—he's convinced—he's convinced Akish that he's—that he's insane. But you know, the people might have been saying, "Well, if I had been in the, the people and going, he wasn't acting like that, uh, you know, 30 minutes ago, King. Uh, I think he's playing." Uh, but the king probably was a little angry at that point, you know. The, uh, you know, when the kings are angry, you don't try to get on their good side at that moment unless you know them really well. And these people are going, okay, yeah, we brought this madman. We don't, you know, we're not going to push this too far. We might, we might end up with our heads disappeared for, for a while. So they go, but you know, you, they could have very easily said, no, that's not the way he was acting, you know, an hour ago, however long it took him to get the king's attention. Uh, but David is making sure that he looks crazy. And the king, you know, says, you know, what have you brought a madman to me for? <laughs> you know, I, I, can't you see he's, he's crazy and you brought a madman? Uh, verse 15, have I need of madmen? <laughs> you know, uh, that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And, you know, we know that David went there to hide. He was going there, he was really going there to ask Achish for protection. He has no place else to go, so he was going there saying, Akish, can I be part of your, your group? At, at, the end of the, at the end, before he becomes king, he actually is going to be in Akish's army, uh, play, playing the, the good servant to the king. Uh, but right now, he's, he's just fearful. He's one man. He's by himself realizing that he's in a bad place. And this is something we find ourselves so often, you know, many times in a bad place by ourselves. And this is the importance that I keep bringing up. We need the church for the strength the church can give us. And it, inevitably, the first thing people will do when they start drifting away from God, first thing is they stop praying and reading their Bible, then they drift away from the church. And then all of a sudden, they, they come to their senses someplace like, how did I get here? I'm all by myself. Or, and during that period of time, before they come to their senses, they'll, they'll do all the arguing. Well, I, can, I don't have to come to church to be a Christian. I can be a Christian without coming to church. And the answer to that is, yes, you didn't lose your Christianity because you stopped going to church. You didn't become lost because you stopped going to church. But if you want to grow and keep following God, you need the support of the church. Over the years that I've been serving God, the one thing I can tell you is if somebody is not going to church, they're not growing. They really aren't. They may temporarily, 
But when you're isolated, you will stop growing. And the great example that is given so often is if you have a roaring fire and there's a nice coal in the center of that bright red, if you take tongs and you take that bright red coal out of the center of the fire and set it off by itself on the edge, that fire will stay red and that coal will cool off very quickly. And that is the way for us as Christians. We might even be burning bright red when we're in, we're in the church, we're in the center of the fire. But if we isolate ourselves from that group, eventually we're going to get cold. And when we fall and you're by yourself, you're in a bad place because there's nobody to pick you up and lift you up. Nobody even going to know that you fell, other than God. But, you know, he uses people in most cases. But if you fall and you're close to the church, there's people who care about you. There's people who will call and say, you know, hey, we've missed you. What's going on? Uh, how have you been doing? I've just been worried about you, you know, praying about you and, and lifting you up. And when you fall down, encouraging you to get back up. And, but when you're by yourself, it's a pretty dangerous place to be. Yeah. I one time did something very foolish. I went up into a mountain and I, and I went hiking by myself. What was even more foolish about it, I had told nobody where I was going. And at one point, I fell through the snow and twisted my ankle. And it's like, I'm glad I only twisted my ankle because I would have been in great trouble. And that's kind of what happens to us. If we get isolated, things happen. And if nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows what's happening. You know, you could be dead. You could be totally lost. But the point of this is when we're with God's people, we're in fellowship there are at least people who will worry about us and pray for us. But if you're not in fellowship, there's nobody really to worry about you and pray for you because they don't know you. And this is why it's important, and this is why we're told in, in Hebrews, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching. Our fellowship with us, and, and again, I've said this many times, just coming to church isn't an absolute guarantee of good success with God. But you're going to have a better success with God by being in church than being alone. Because you can only stay focused on God for so long when you're, when you're by yourself. And our flesh will eventually take us down. I, you know, it just happens. You know, somebody leave, and a lot of times they'll, they'll leave and they just get angry with the church and they'll still read their Bible, maybe pray for a while. But eventually they start drifting away from it. And it's very important to stay focused on God and be with the body of Christ so that we can lift up one another and you can lift up people when they're down, they can lift you up when you're down. And it's critically important that we do this. David's lost himself, he's gone to the enemy for help. <laughs> then he has to act like a crazy man to get out of it. And I don't know if he had to, he could have depended on God to get him out of it, but, you know, but his answer was, I'm gonna act like a crazy man to get out of the problem. And that's exactly what we do when, we're, when we've isolated ourselves. We end up doing crazy things. And a really bad thing about this, usually when we go off and do really dumb things, when we start doing it, we can come up with all kinds of reasons why it was a good thing to do. Well, you know, God, I just had to do this because. You know, uh, and God's just like, yeah, I don't think that was a very good answer. And we won't think it's a good answer when we get back with God. But when we first get there, we'll have all kinds of excuses on why it was the best thing to do. David's saying, you know, I just had to get away from Saul, so I went to the nearest border that there was. Yeah, it happened to be the Philistines, but, you know, 
what's the big deal till he gets there? And we oftentimes will make these kind of excuses. I've seen over the years where somebody will get married to somebody who's not a Christian and say, you know, they'll convince themselves they're doing it the right, the right thing. You know, God, we're really in love with each other. I'll get, I'll get this conversion converted. You know, usually it works the other way around. Now, in a very rare circumstance, it'll, it'll work out. But that is so rare, it's not worth the, worth the effort. Or we'll get ourselves caught up in something and say, well, you know, God, you just can't run a business without, you know, getting these false advertising and lead people the wrong direction. You know, God, if I ran my business honest, I wouldn't be able to stay in business. You know, as you're getting run off to jail for false advertising or whatever it might be, you're facing fines. You know, we justify so much of what we do because we're not following God. And then when we get in our right mind, we realize, boy, that was a really dumb thing to be doing. I shouldn't have done that. So we want to stay focused on God. We want to stay in intimate relationship with God so in the long run, we can work it out and say, God, I just wanted to follow you. And we read all these different stories in the biographies and in the Bible. When people do it the right way, God is in it, and he makes it work out. He's going to make things work out anyway. You know, we look at Abraham and Sarah having children in their 90s. You know, and when, they, when the angel first told Sarah, uh, Abraham and Sarah that she was going to have a child, she laughed. And why did she laugh? She goes, basically, she goes, I'm past menopause. <laughs> okay? I'm not even having periods anymore. I cannot have children. And this crazy man talking to my husband says, I'm going to have a child. By sight, she was absolutely right. There was no way she was going to have a child in any way, shape, or form. And yet, a year later, she's had, it, had her child. Now, when God is involved, anything can happen. And he makes things happen. The children of Israel in Egypt as slaves. And God says, I'm going to deliver you. Oh, yeah, you're going to deliver us, God. The, the Egyptians are the mightiest army in the you know, empire in the, in the world right now, and you're going you're gonna to deliver us from them? And God took them out by showing his, his hand. If we just trust God, we can see him work. And when we're in that point of trust, there's no way it seems to make sense. Children of Israel in, in Egypt saw no sense in being, you know, that they were ever going to be delivered. Sarah saw no sense that she was going to have a child. We see it over and over in the scriptures where it doesn't make any sense for something to happen the way it does. You know, we look at the life of Joseph being sold as a slave. No, no sense in that at all to him. You know, he's got a promise from God that his brothers are going to bow down to him. And he's sold into slavery. Thinks he's never going to see his brothers again. Can you imagine, God, uh, you gave me this dream, you know, what's, what's up? You know, matter of fact, you gave me two dreams, God, and now I'm being sold as a slave and I'm never going to see my brothers again. How, how is it they're going to bow down to me? Well, we know the rest of the story. They ended up bowing down to him. You know, we see this over and over again in the scriptures. How can so much happen? We see the story of Jesus, that he was going to be called a Nazarene born, and be born in Bethlehem and spend time in Egypt. You know, looking at those scriptures, a lot of times before it happened, everybody's going, this doesn't make any sense. A Nazarene would be born in Nazareth. You know, not, not in Bethlehem, and what, you know, what is he doing in Egypt? 
And yet we know exactly by the gospel message how it all happened. We need to have this place where we have faith that God is going to make things happen. And that's the great thing that we can just take and say, God, don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how it's going to work out the way you say it's going to work out. I'm just going to trust you and learn to not try to do things our way. And it's so easy to want to do it our way. <laughs> you know, God, uh, I think I'm going to do this. And I've shared with you, I spent six years fighting with God, doing it my way. And having him stop everything, not, not let it work. When I finally gave up, he fixed the problem in, in less than six months. I spent six years fighting with him. Don't spend six years fighting with God. You'll lose anyway. It's not worth it. Uh, you know, be willing to trust him and say, God, I want to do it your way and the way that you want, it, want things to work out. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this. We thank you for this lesson. Lord, help us to learn to do things your ways to follow you and be obedient to you and not make mistakes that lead into costly errors. And we just ask you to go with us about our business. In Jesus' name, amen.